0: Hey, everybody. Fantastic episode of The Bitcoin Show today. We are joined by Ram Alawalia, the CEO of Lumida Wealth Management. Ram provides really in-depth analysis on investing in Bitcoin in 2023, altcoins, the way he's thinking about growth stocks like Nvidia and Tesla, the way he's thinking about the macro environment. He talks a bit about commercial real estate. It's a really information-dense hour with Ram. We really enjoyed it. He's an electric guest, so definitely hope you all enjoy it too want to mention that the show, as always, is sponsored by Trust Machines. Uh, Trust Machines being the company growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. Leather is a new product. It's a Bitcoin wallet being released by Trust Machines designed to create a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer two solutions. Self custodied open source and audited wallet. Leather.io for more information. Hope you enjoy the Bitcoin show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hope every Everybody had a fantastic Labor Day weekend. We are back. With the Bitcoin show today, Tuesday, September 5th. This show covers all things Bitcoin, past, present, and future. And we do this every single week at this time, 2 p.m. Eastern time, right here on Twitter Spaces. Also available on Apple and Spotify podcasts. So if you want to share the show with people outside of the Twitter bubble, the X bubble, if you will, definitely check out the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, really wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also see a Tweet pinned to the top. That's just a link to this live recording right now on Twitter Spaces. If you want to support the show, just like and retweet that tweet. It'll help us a lot uh, in getting this show in front of as many eyeballs, in front of as many listeners as we possibly can. We have a great show. Uh, Our last one with Mike Alfred was absolutely incredible. Um, It's actually been performing really well too. Very excited about that. I recommend anybody that hasn't listened to last week's Bitcoin show, with Mike Alfred, definitely do it. Uh, You can find it on the Bitcoin show Twitter account which is on stage right now. You can find it on Apple or Spotify podcasts also if you want to go that route. But it was absolutely fantastic and I'm sure that today's show will be no different. I want to introduce my co-host here, Aubrey Strobel. Aubrey, a marketing partner at Trust Machines, host of the Observation, a big-time Bitcoin content creator in her own right, and of course the former head of communications at Lolly. Make sure you subscribe to the Observation on YouTube. A really great YouTube channel there. Aubrey, how's it going? It's going good.
1: Big big week. Bitcoin's down, but uh, Trust Machines is killing it. Huge launch for Leather last week, so really excited. If you if you haven't heard, uh, Trust Machines launched. It's a uh-
0: think we lost Aubrey there, um, but I'm sure that she was about to discuss that Trust Machines has launched Leather, which is the wallet. Uh, It's a rebrand of Hero Wallet. It's very exciting stuff. Uh, So definitely check out Leather. Um, And it looks like uh, there might be some issues on X on Twitter today. That's what it feels like. If anybody cannot hear me or here, anybody that's on stage, please emoji with the thumbs down emoji, send a DM. There have been quite a few issues with Twitter spaces over the last week, uh, and we just wanna be um, aware of that. Uh, Our producer Clemente saying that on his side, everything is good, so everything should be good, Uh, but we'll see. Before I throw to our uh, incredibly uh, special guest today, Ram, who I'll introduce in just a moment, I just wanted to mention that the show is sponsored by Trust Machines. Uh, So Trust Machines, you see the account on stage, Trust Machines is uh, focused on growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications that are all on Bitcoin and its various layers. Uh, Last week, Trust Machines announced the launch of Leather, the Bitcoin wallet, creating a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer 2 solutions. So Leather is a self-custody, open-source, and audited wallet, allowing users to secure and manage Bitcoin Ordinals, Stacks L2, and other Bitcoin secured assets like BRC20. For more information or to create your wallet today, go to leather.io. Great URL there. Uh, and as always, make sure that you're following Trust Machines here on X so you see the account on stage uh, that's at Trust Machines Co. on Twitter or on X, um, and, and go to Co for uh, any additional information that you have. Uh, but before we go any further, I want to introduce today's very special guest the CEO of Lumita Wealth Management, the ex founder and CEO of Peer IQ, had an exit in 2021, ex Wall Street investor, and sh- someone that shares incredible investing and macroeconomic insights right here on X. We have Ram. Ram, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you, Pierre. Thank you for having me. I hope I live up to the hype. That was a great
0: introduction. <laughs> well, just naming the things you do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I wish my wife would.
0: there. <laughs> So, uh, well, let's dig into it. Yeah, let's dig into it. So I had a plan for how we were gonna to approach today's uh, show, but I actually wanna make a small adjustment to it because I noticed when I woke up this morning, you had a little bit of an emergency space yesterday, it seems, and and you know, I listened to it. But um, but yeah, could you talk about what you discussed on that Twitter space that you kinda of did, I'm, I'm assuming in an impromptu way yesterday?
2: That was the DCG uh, spaces you were yes. referring to there? That was on Saturday? Okay, sure. Well, yeah. Let me, give, let me give that backdrop. So, you know, as you know, DCG is the uh, owner of Grayscale, which is the issuer of various trusts, including Grayscale Bitcoin Trust (GBTC) as well as something like a dozen other, a dozen to eighteen others. And they own Genesis. So, it's really uh, helping the community of Gemini Earn investors and direct creditors to Genesis understand how to approach this situation where they woke up one day and realized they were unsecured creditors to Genesis and they did not expect that. And most of these were retail investors and they're understandably upset as they should be. And it really was around, hey, here's here's what you should consider doing petitioning the bankruptcy judge specifically, to seek a change in Genesis management due to what I perceive are significant conflicts of interest between Genesis uh, and its parent company, BCG. So there's a whole, there's a lot there. You let me know where you want to go, but that's really the Kind of the headline topic that we were focused on.
0: Absolutely, and so I think maybe we can break this down a little bit. So, you know, I, for judging by listening to that space at the end, it was pretty clear that people—it's a small subset of crypto, but a but a sizable one nonetheless—which is people that have exposure to the product Gemini Earn. Th- those folks. They seem really, really interested in what's happening there, um, and basically to give a high level understanding of that from my perspective is that if if individuals had money in Gemini Earn, which was one of Gemini's products, the uh, Gemini being the cryptocurrency exchange founded by the and run by the Winklevoss twins, um, when the FTX debacle went down, you know, Grayscale or Genesis Lending uh, was caught up in you know the whole the, the, just the FTX kind of crossfire, and as a result, uh, mm-hmm. if you had money in gemini earn it's it's locked up it's not available for withdrawal at this point um how significant is this outside of you know just folks that have money locked up and earned does this impact you know anything regarding like the um you know the the etf filings we're seeing right now from companies like blackrock like how are you thinking about this in the the entire landscape
2: now, yeah, it doesn't impact the price of Bitcoin because the integrity of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is secure, and that Bitcoin is custody at Coinbase. So it's not going to impact Bitcoin asset prices. It also will not impact the approval of a Bitcoin ETF. You know, uh, it's, it's really, you know, we got hundreds of thousands of Gemini Earn retail clients that are saying, look, I thought I had liquidity on this. I thought I owned my assets. I trusted these institutions and now they're out of their funds. So uh, every few months or so, I try to, I try to focus on this. I have no relationship with Genesis or Gemini or I've never been a customer, uh, but I've, uh, I invest in credit and securities. And I did all this research back in November, December, trying to figure out whether there's an impact on the price of Bitcoin. And so going through all of that, you know, you, you learn about, these issues and you know if you can help people create perspective on them then why not right so that's that's what i'm trying to do but I'll, I'll tell you this though i can tell you I, like my dms get filled with people that have a lot of angst and suffering and anxiety around all these issues so it's a, uh, it really is heartbreaking um and relatedly like as you as you invest in bitcoin or anything else for that matter just make sure you're doing it responsibly you know you really have to understand what you're doing do the research uh, be thoughtful about uh, the counterparties you work with or if you self-custody be thoughtful about how you secure your private keys like that don't dismiss the importance of the hygiene right it's convenient to ignore it and put it on your to-do list for later Uh, but then consequences happen right there's an individual there's a story i read about a prominent individual who passed away suddenly at a young age and he lost a billion dollars. His kids and his wife will not inherit because he didn't have a, a trust tax and estate plan that contemplated Bitcoin. And more fundamentally, he did not have a procedure to pass his keys. So,
0: yeah, good. I think that's something a lot of Bitcoiners probably haven't thought about because the technology is still, you know, pretty young. Is actually having a plan, like basically a last will and testament that includes private keys and a secure way to do that without compromising. So that's a great point that you bring up. Before, before we just move on to, you know, kind of uh, Bitcoin in 2023 and, and some macro discussion, um, that whole like just from listening to your space yesterday, it really sounds like that whole digital currency group, uh, Genesis Lending, Gemini Earn, you know. Way Mikovos twins, Barry Silbert situation. I think in the in the space you referred to it as a train wreck. That's what it sounds like to me when I yeah. think about everything going on. How long do you think uh, it'll be before creditors see a resolution there?
2: Yeah, great question. I don't think we'll see a resolution this year because the strategy of Digital Currency Group is to take every legal action they can to delay, and that's the thing they should be doing if they're acting in their own interest. It may not be the right thing to do and it doesn't help creditors, but that's my interpretation of their behavior. That's not going to change. That's one. Second is Genesis should be acting in the best duty of care for its creditors. And my perception, which I laid out in this spaces, is, is that you know they're conflicted, right? The, the CEO was formerly the COO who was uh, responsible for compliance and supervision and uh, allegedly, per the Cameron Winklevoss complaint lawsuit against ECG, uh, issued financial statements that were false, misleading, and induced creditors to roll over. So you have, yeah, this like morass of conflicts of interest, and it's hard to get stuff done. Now there's a there's a new proposal that will be introduced from this group, including Gemini, called the Fair Deal Group. So there's a lot, there's a lot to get through. And you gotta process that proposal, then you gotta go through a voting. So I don't think we'll see anything this year. Now there's a chance, there's a on-shot goal chance for some distributions to the extent all creditors agree on certain certain distributions that are not disputed whatsoever. Right? They say, hey, yeah, these are secured creditors, pay them out. It's a very small portion, doesn't include Gemini Earn, that could get paid out. And then a portion of the Gemini Earn, but anything that's disputed, uh, and there's there's a lot that's being disputed right now. The GBTC collateral, that's one. Two is even the FTX settlement between Genesis and FTX of $175 million claim, that's being challenged by Gemini. So train wreck, Shakespearean drama, it's a mess and uh it's really unfortunate
0: yeah it sounds like it well we, we can move on from that i just uh i've noticed from following you you seem to be uh, honestly i said this to the producer of the show today that you're the only person in the world that's making content on the uh the digital currency group so, and gemini situation uh, i i think that's accurate right
2: <laughs> i think so that's it's it's like no good deed goes unpunished <laughs>
0: it's
2: like i don't know I feel there's a gap in a vacuum out there and uh you know, just try, you know, once you've done the work and you can connect the dots and, you, you know, it's not hard to share the next update and perspective around it. Right. That's the thing. This stuff is, you know, you've got multiple organizations and relationships between them and this and that. So, yeah, that's my form of volunteering work. I'm, I'm lousy at the soup kitchen stuff, but I love uh, teaching, education, mentorship and uh Talking about what I love talking about, which is markets, investing. So that's my public contribution. I hope people see it that way.
0: I, I love it, Ram, and I, I wish more people would do that. You know, speaking of investing, uh, obviously you work in wealth management, uh, and this is the Bitcoin show. So let's talk about, you know, kind of start broad here with Bitcoin in 2023. Bitcoin's up 55% this year, but it's down 12% in, last, in the last month. If you kind of pay attention to the sentiment on Twitter, it, it almost feels like it's it's down on the year, right? Just because uh, it almost feels like people are are getting burned out here as Bitcoin chops and, you know, is down 12 uh, wh- what do you make of where we're at here? You know, with where interest rates are at, how the rest of this year plays out. We've had a lot of different opinions on this show and on another podcast that I host. Uh, you know, different guests. Raul Paul said that he wouldn't be surprised yeah. if rates act- actually end up uh, getting cut this year. Uh, you know, another yeah. uh, person, that, another guest <laughs> that we've had on this show, Joe Consorti, thinks we're just at the beginning of a of a much deeper recession. How are you thinking about this?
1: So
2: I know, I know Raul, he's great. I love him. Uh, no, we're not going to see rate cuts this year. In fact, we, you know, there's a lot of us talk about a pivot at the beginning of the year, which made no sense. That's not happening. That was one of our big non-consensus calls, which we've gotten right. Obviously, futures markets now finally are reflecting that. So, no, we're going to see rates higher for longer because the Fed is a bind. Inflation is still running hot. Their target level is 2%. It's not 5% on core. It's not 3%. It's 2%. That's their target. And their primary mandate, now it isn't minimizing unemployment or keeping inflation 2%. It's restoring credibility. So their primary goal is to get inflation at 2%. What would cause them to change their course and pivot would be if there's a breakdown in treasury markets. If financial markets infrastructure starts breaking down, they will then panic like they did in the COVID era when corporate bond markets were frozen and the municipal bond market was frozen. Then they will take some intervention. But even then that intervention, I do not believe will be a rate cut. It'll be like providing credit facilities to banks or institutions. So, uh, yeah, rates higher than longer. I'll try to kind of summarize my my quick takes here and you can double click wherever you want. Uh, look, We're in a bull market, first off, on digital assets. It's really interesting. People keep talking about the dry market. Well, look, we're in a bull market now. It's the best performing asset class of the year. And people were caught off sides going into this. The market bottomed after, funny enough, Genesis suspended withdrawals on November 16th. That was the bottom of the market. And there we actually felt this tweet in late December because the the key question would be like, what are the other shoes to fall, right? Because there is this concept of contagion and we concluded are no other major big actors that have exposure, you know, 3AC, DCG, Genesis, uh, that was that you're going to have some smaller international players that have issues. I have no clue what the heck is going on with Binance. (laughs) So don't ask me about that one. Uh, but, uh, you know, the sentiment was so dour, the news was so bad. Uh, you know, VCs were pivoting to AI that whoever wanted to sold, sold. And then in January, you had eight consecutive days of Bitcoin moving up in price. And that was the signal to get in because Bitcoin, Bitcoin's momentum asset has a lot of serial, serial correlation, right? So where we are now is August has been a down month, just as it was for risk assets. Actually, we made a tactical call on August 1st to go underway risk assets. We still have that view, but we're getting more and more constructive. In fact, we're nibbling where we see value and we're, we're cross asset class. We look at alts, public equities, private credit, uh, you know, Mercedes-Benz stock, UBS stock, <laughs> you name it, uh, the Grayscale products. But, you know, September is the worst month for Bitcoin seasonality and seasonality does play a role uh, in this. So keep that in mind. That's one. The second is, uh, you know, the dollar is starting to fade a bit. Dollar strength is not in Bitcoin's interest. If you tell me the direction of the dollar, I'll tell you the direction of Bitcoin. They go in opposite directions. So I was pleased to see dollar weakening. That's great. That's a good. That's a good sign. That's a. That's like a ground condition, if you will. That's being established. So I think sometime between now and the end of September, maybe October tenth, we'll see an intermediate bottom in Bitcoin. Um, I think there's a lot of bearishness out there. I think that's contrarian bullish. Uh, you know, if if it's 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 hard to forecast prices. You know, it's very, you know, there's, there's a lot of off market exchange of Bitcoin, unfortunately, which makes it a very, you know, it's, it's opaque, but, um, you know, I would, I would look to take exposure on the idea that there'll be a bottom sometime between now and October 8th or 15th. And if you really want to play conservatively, uh, then I would wait for, you know, getting past September and looking for some positive momentum, if not even a positive month. Right. Um, and then the mode of expression, I would consider uh, some of the public listed closed in funds, which have a discount to NAV, because I don't believe the SEC will approve these ETFs in October. As you know, they they filed a, a delay after the court uh, dismissed or vacated their order. Uh, to not approve the Bitcoin ETF. I don't think Chair Gensler will change his view. This is too political for them now. We can go there if you want. However, an ETF is inevitable. It won't happen, I don't think, under this chair, but under a subsequent chair. So a lot of this turns on your time horizon. Those discounts have come in quite a bit. And last I checked, I think the discount on Grace, and I was, I was on holiday for the last week or so, but I believe it was like 18% so you know i don't think those discounts will go to zero until it's an etf and absent an etf those discounts can linger and it could very well stabilize even at like a 10 to 12
0: percent well fantastic uh, yeah a fantastic yeah. analysis Robin. i want to dig into a couple of different things there uh but i want to throw to publius who's a frequent speaker on this show he had a question for you uh that i think is going to be a good one Publius, do you have a minute right now
1: yeah of course Thanks, Ram, for hopping on. I uh, really appreciate it. One thing I've been trying to get a sense of, and I'm not totally clear on what the reality is here, I'm uh, interested to hear your, your thoughts. Um, the 10-year, the US 10-year treasury yield seems to have broken above a downward channel. So like the past, I don't know, was it been like 40 years? It's basically stayed in this channel that's been downward going toward basically zero from from like eight to 10% down to basically like zero, <laughs> zero to four. Um, and now it's like, it's really peaked up. It looks like a groundhog, you know, it's like it, its head up. I'm wondering whether yeah. you, you sort of see that, Yeah, I'm sort of wondering whether you have the U.S. starting to uh, basically have to basically be, basically whether people are treating the tenure as uh, almost like an emerging market um, where there's real risk. Hmm.
2: Uh... Well, I mean, different investors have different perceptions around the 10-year. I don't think it's really driven by that kind of risk, right? The U.S. cannot default because the the Fed is there. So it really comes down to inflation expectations, growth expectations in the long run, and in the short run, market technicals, like the issuance of uh, 10-year notes to fund the deficit, there's substantial issuance that's taking place over the next six to nine months. And that technical force is playing a role in driving up rates. So those are the two competing forces, right? On the one hand, you have disinflation that is taking place, although I believe it is going to be sticky, but the easy gains in disinflation have been won. The hard gains are reducing wage inflation, especially in leisure and hospitality people want to stretch after being locked up at home and they're spending on cruises, on restaurants, on travel. And you can see that in their earnings for Delta, uh, for United, uh, for cruise stocks that were up 90% in the you know, two months after May. Right? So, so those are the two competing forces. You have this technical issue around the U S is issuing a bunch of treasuries. It's trying to telegraph to the market, what it's doing so that the market's not uh, the market can digest that. And on the other hand, you have disinflation and I expect a slower pace of growth ahead that would cause a 10-year to moderate. I think over the next six months, the 10-year is going to find a new level, right? It's going through price discovery now is my read on this. And it could get to 4.5. It could something like that. But I think that would be on the higher end and probably coming lower. But, you know, the caveat here is that many people have tried to forecast interest rates extraordinarily hard first of all keep that in mind perfect <laughs> extraordinarily hard uh but that's the way to look at it i, w- I would say is uh you know those are the forces you want to take a look at
0: publius any follow-up no just wanted to hear
1: that i appreciate it ron
0: awesome. You bet. Awesome. And, and, you know, Ram, you mentioned that you think that we're in a digital asset bull market right now. Obviously, you pointed out the bottom uh, being, you know, last November, right around the time of the FTX debacle when, when Genesis uh, halted withdrawals. How much do you factor in? And, and this is a question we ask, you know, most guests on this show. We, we try to get different perspectives. How much do you factor in the Bitcoin having cycle? And, you know, the fact that we have the halving coming up here in less than a year, you know, you know, should be around like April, May of next year. How much does your firm take that into account?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question and it's a consideration. Um, but I don't have conviction on that as a primary driver. You know, although even my, the conviction of the statement I just made, I don't have much conviction on either. <laughs> so, you know, it's a... Uh, Yeah, look, I think there could be a price run-up due to the halving, but I don't think it'll have a a lasting impact. Um, You know, I think things that are more fundamental will be the behavior of the Federal Reserve. For example, and I don't expect to see the case, certainly for the next year or so, if the Fed were to engage in Japanese-style yield curve control, that would be very bullish for Bitcoin. That's a more powerful factor. Uh, than the having cycle, you know, if if we are in a risk on climate, that benefits Bitcoin. Uh, I don't think Bitcoin can outrun a risk off cycle. I don't think Bitcoin can outrun a dollar strengthening, which is the same thing as saying a risk off cycle. I don't think the having can overcome that. So it's a consideration, but I don't think it's the primary consideration. You know, you may be able to utilize it to consider your entries. You, know, you might be able to say, be a little bit more thoughtful around when you want to you know, uh, increase your exposure. Right, Have another kind of mini cycle in your favor, so to speak.
0: Got it. And, and to you, I guess, what would be the most bearish events that could happen, say, in the next year or two for Bitcoin? You kind of pointed out things that would be bullish already. What, what would be really bearish? Yep.
2: Well, it's, it's, a, it's also a great question. You know, we've seen so many bearish news items, first off, right? It's, it's hard to consider what headlines can be more bearish. There's a few, though. One would be in October, the SEC uh, rejects these Bitcoin ETF applications on new grounds, and I expect they will. I hope I'm wrong, but I expect they will. They'll find some other reason to reject it and may well be capricious and arbitrary and have to be litigated again. But that's some bad news ahead. Uh, that's one. And incidentally, if the market doesn't react negatively to that, that means this is all priced in, which is which would be great. So you want to, you know, you want to mark that date on your calendar and take a look. I think the second thing would be uh, just negative momentum in general, right? You, uh, it's not even so much a headline, but just monitoring uh, the momentum in the asset. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to see where, what are the negative headlines that one could see develop here. I think, uh, you know, we I think a lot of that is behind us. Like what what institution is at risk that would compromise public trust? Haven't we seen the bad actors go down? Binance is an open question, right? So, um, you know, is always lingering out in the back in the back somewhere. But um, you know, if, if any action happened around Binance and there was a big red candle and there was a lot of fear and, you know, I, I'm not saying these things are true or not true. I don't know. I wish I knew. I'm trying to figure that out. Can't find any public data on this stuff. If that were to happen, I would say, you know, don't panic sell. Think back to Genesis. Genesis bottomed on November 16th. The Bitcoin bottom, excuse me, on November 16th. Genesis was a blue chip institution in this category. So, you know, to the extent that those events happen, uh, those might be opportunities to gain exposure.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're definitely, I'd say this show is much more focused on having a long-term time horizon, right? It's not like a a trading show by any means. So I think people that listen to the show, the vast majority of them just view every dip (laughs) as an accumulation opportunity. Um, You know, you mentioned uh, that you expect a a rejection uh, of the ETFs. Uh, However, for example, BlackRock, it's my understanding that there's only ever been one ETF uh, that BlackRock filed for that has not been approved. So do you think that they'll be flat out rejected, or do you think it'll just keep getting delayed?
2: Uh, Functionally, you get to the same point of not having a Bitcoin ETF admitted under the current SEC chair, whether it's delayed or rejected, right? So I don't know which of those two actions it'll take, but I don't think materially it's a distinction that'll make a difference. The BlackRock track record is impressive. I don't think it's relevant here, right? So if you look at the SEC and their uh, rejection notices, they put together these 80 to 120 page documents responding to every application. And they're very specific to the deficiency that they saw in the application. Now, they don't lay out here the requirements and here's what we want to see to help launch ETF, which is very frustrating. but they do lay out some reasoning for the rejection. I expect we will see that, um, and uh, yeah, I just don't. I just don't see them approving. It's too. It's too political, right? Like uh, in Congress, you have Maxine Waters on the one hand and Patrick McHenry on the other. This has become a political issue now. Gensler, he is uh, sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has gone public with this anti-crypto army. Think about that. How, how wild that is to have a sitting senator have this campaign called anti-crypto, that it matters that much. And why are they doing that? Well, two reasons. One is uh, these politicians took in money from FTX, right? SBF went from the golden boy to being toxic. And so they're running away and they want to wash their hands of this. And the second thing was Elizabeth Warren, uh, Played a role. Well, she published a letter, which played a role in undermining Silvergate Bank. I don't think she intended, or anyone anyway expected, that Silvergate would have a run on the bank and would destroy that banking institution, right? So now the narrative is, "Hey, all this stuff is bad, and don't let it into our financial system." And they're sticking to that narrative, and Gensler is is unfortunately a part of that. It's really disappointing because. If there was anyone that could have been the bridge between the old world and the new world, the old world of legacy financial institutions on broken infrastructure that doesn't settle in, in real time um, and has privacy considerations and issues around that, to this new world of the decentralized finance with an all-to-all market that's modern, real-time, and is secured via cryptography, um, you know he could have played that role, and unfortunately, uh, you know he did not apply that leadership.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely unfortunate. I guess my quick follow-up question would be, why do you think that BlackRock filed for the ETF when they did, was it just to get the process started? Because it does seem like given their track record with ETF filings, they probably make sure that they're in a position to get an ETF approved before they file for it. I, I'd be curious if, if you think that under Gensler, it's not yeah. possible, was it just to kind of get the process started?
2: Good, good questions, yeah, so one is, I believe they looked at the Grayscale application, or sorry, Grayscale litigation against the SEC and said, all right, these guys have good odds. And in fact, we did see the courts repudiate uh, the denial of the ETF, okay? So that's one, they wanna get their throw their ring in the hat, so to speak. Uh, But the other is, you know, BlackRock has a lot of pressure on their business. BlackRock is an incredibly well-run business Larry Fink is very strategic, uh, very thoughtful, very forward-looking. He's very pro-technology. Uh, you know, he, he sees the future, and the future is tokenization. And Singapore is embracing tokenization. You know, Japan, Hong Kong, countries are embracing tokenization. They see that as a way to gain advantage and develop the next advanced capital market. So meanwhile, BlackRock is facing threats to their ETF business because there's this new type of technology coming online called direct investing, where instead of paying Vanguard or BlackRock or whomever, you know, a fee for having access to ETF, that's just kind of access to the underlying basket. Right. The other the other trend is you're seeing KKR and Apollo directly engage with the LPs and they're doing that in a tokenized format. So the LPs are the investors in private equity funds. Right now, BlackRock is an asset manager. What does that mean? BlackRock intermediates investors and investment products. So an investment product would be like a KKR or an Apollo and BlackRock is, so to speak, the middle guy, the middleman between this. So they see the future and they're looking out five, 10, 15 years. And they want to get ahead of that. So also, I think that ETF application is a way to pressure Chair Gensler by putting the weight of BlackRock behind this and adding legitimacy to the space. Um, and then some other two points on this. Chair Gensler is not very popular in markets. And it's not just crypto. I mean, there, you know, there's a Wall Street, Journal edit, the Wall Street Journal editorial board doesn't like Chair Gensler.
0: There's an out that I
2: saw last week around this. And in other markets, there's um, just a lot of regulatory activity that people believe exceeds the authority and the mandate of the SEC. The SEC takes direction from Congress, so I think that's another part. And then this is my more speculative. Hey,
0: hey Ram, uh, we, we lost. Had,
2: you know, Larry King may have. Yeah, go ahead, sir.
0: I was going to say we sorry lost you that. there for a no 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 problem we lost you for a brief second but we got you back
2: yep sorry about that um the the last point is larry fink may have a political aspiration that's my you know for treasury secretary that's a i don't know i have have no idea how to write that last one i'm just saying it's a it's not uncommon from people that are ceos of wall street to have the ambition to go become treasury secretary he built blackrock for nothing over the last couple of decades he's incredibly talented he knows banks very well that we have banking issues. He knows markets very well. He knows debt markets, especially. That's what BlackRock was known as a fixed income house. The U.S. has debt to GDP issues. Yeah, you know, he'd be a phenomenal treasury secretary, in my opinion. So that might be a part of it, too. All, all of this, I think, you know, they point in the same direction. Though. It's more than just, hey, we think that's offering the Bitcoin ETF. It's also, you know, longer term. They're uh, looking after their, you know, strategic interest from the rise of direct indexing and markets moving offshore.
0: Wow. Well Rom, that that last Part, that was a first on this show. We haven't had any guest bring up that kind of speculation. That's juicy. That that uh, gets the gears turning for sure. The Larry Fink positioning himself for a potential future uh, treasury secretary role. It's it's funny that you brought up Gary Gensler not being well-liked even outside of markets because I, I believe it was Pete Rizzo who was on our show. I'm almost positive it was Pete Rizzo, the editor at Bitcoin Magazine, that was talking about how Gensler, you know, it, it, he's not politically savvy Compared to you know maybe other people that have held his position before uh, do you have any prediction Ram and then we can move on from the SEC and sure. from Gensler but do you have any prediction of how you know Gensler's kind of chapter as SEC chair ends and and yeah. how we kind of move on from this
2: I think nothing happens until after the election you know the Democratic Party cannot admit defeat they gotta stick with that narrative through the election and then after the election We'll see what happens, but uh, then I believe they would, they would move on. I think, I think this is the last term, but you will yeah, carry I- on the term.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people uh, think about that, you know, think that way too. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit because uh, like you mentioned, you invest in not only Bitcoin, uh, but you also invest in alts, you also invest in, in tech stocks, and you tweet about this stuff too. So we have some tweets prepared that we want to talk about. But I want to understand, how do you think about alts? Uh, like, are you Bitcoin first and then you think about alts? Do you kind of view all different crypto assets the same? Like, how do you think about altcoins?
2: You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum play an important role in a digital assets exposure. And I see them very differently. I don't see them as competitive. I see Bitcoin as the first international asset that's a true digital currency. And it's already behaving like that today. You can see it in how it interacts with the US dollar, for instance. You know, I see Ethereum differently. I see it as a kind of like a decentralized app store that probably benefits more from the tokenization trend and Bitcoin benefits more from, you know, unstable monetary policy and policy volatility, and I think has a very noble purpose in helping individuals in inflation-ravaged countries like Argentina and Lebanon and Iran uh, and Russia escape these despotic regimes who are, who are stealing from the public they're meant to serve. So I think Bitcoin has a very important role in you know, advancing human freedom. So, but yeah, we're cross asset class, so alts are a very, in fact, that's our specialty, alternate investments. And by the way, if you look at how like high net worth, ultra high net worth investors invest, the average allocation to alts, fun fact, from say UBS or Goldman Sachs, uh, is 50% exposure to alts. what, What are alts? Alts include things like private equity, private credit, venture capital, distressed debt, uh, distressed commercial real estate, or real estate more generally, uh, biotech, uh, relative value longshore, commodity trading advisor pools, right? So that is, that's alt trade finance. There's, there's a lot of niche things going on in alts as well, you know, refund anticipation, tax credit loans, you know, uh, distressed note investing. Uh, but these are all accessed through private funds. They're not publicly listed. In fact, that's partially why those generally have higher returns is because the fact that it's not easily accessed through your brokerage account means those markets are more inefficient. But ALTS is, I also play such an important role in a portfolio because they give you the freedom to discern how, where, and when you want to play in liquid markets. Right. You have it's like if you're 60, 40 did not work. 2022. It didn't work last month. Rates went up. Stock prices fell, bonds fell, did not add diversification. Right. But if you have alts, you can find uncorrelated sources of return. And Ray Dalio said this many years ago. He's exactly right. It's pure math. If you can identify seven to 10 uncorrelated return streams, that have a positive expectancy, meaning there's some risk premium or some inefficiency or some long run reason why it's delivering return. If you have seven to ten of these uncorrelated return streams, then you can build a portfolio that is thoughtful and immunized, come what may, to the best of your ability. Right. So that's how we you know, that's how we look at it. I'm trying to ask myself, OK, Rather than make a prediction on whether the recession or not, you know, it's our job to think about that stuff. A better question is, how do I design a portfolio that's resilient to those scenarios that gives me freedom to maneuver? Or, for example, you know, the, we had a tactical risk underweight on U.S. equities, or well, risk assets in general on August 1st. I've never been that lucky in timing, but obviously risk assets have sold off since then. But I won't get into the whys and whiffers around that unless you want to, but you know, the PEs were very elevated, sentiment was elevated, and I said, look, I'm not being compensated for owning equities and I want to be more selective now, so let's dial that down and let's dial up other strategies like private credit and cannabis lending. Cannabis lending, it's illegal for banks to lend against cannabis because cannabis is federally illegal, so there are these private funds that make floating rate interest loans. Floating rate means that don't have exposure to interest rate risk. They're senior secured, and they throw off a fourteen to sixteen percent interest. So those are opportunities that we find interesting. So also gives you that freedom of expression.
0: Yeah, super super crafty strategy there. Uh, you know, we we paid attention to some tweets that you've had over the past few months, and you've tweeted quite a bit about Nvidia and. Yeah. When I look at the chart, right, uh, Nvidia has had a hell of a year thus far, uh, up almost 2x. And in, in one of your tweets, you asked yourself, is Nvidia overvalued? And you said, probably, but that's the wrong way to think right. about growth stocks. Could you kind of share you know, a little bit of your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And we could spend a lot of time on this one. But uh,
0: hmm.
2: well, look, there are, two, there are two approaches to investing. Simplifying a bit. There's value investing, which is oriented around intrinsic value. That's classic Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Um, and many of the greatest investors we know are value investors, by the way. We don't know many growth investors. Something to think about. Um, but growth investing is, is different. You know, where value investing is buy low and you want to compound earnings over time, you want a business that has the longevity of cash flows that is protected from competition. Uh, and can grow earnings. And growth investing is buy high, sell higher. It's a very different mindset mentality. So growth investing is very challenging. Like the 2010s were the decade for growth investing. And part of that was all of this QE and uh, you know $9 trillion in, in QE and ultra low interest rates and easy money. And we're leaving that environment because of higher real interest rates. And growth has outperformed value um, over the last 10 to 12 years. Although, if you look over the, the large arc of history, value does outperform growth. So the big question people are asking is, when will value come back? And you can look at this, I have a chart on one of these tweets, showing the performance of value strategies versus growth strategies versus quality strategies and momentum. These are factors. These are factors that represent how baskets of stocks with similar characteristics move in price, right? Now, on growth, What you want to look for there is, first off, if you have a growth stock like Nvidia, you need to expect the best out of them. Like if you hire LeBron James and you're paying him a hundred million dollar contract, he's got to perform. He's got to hit his free throw shots and triple doubles and all the rest. And if they don't, you've got to cut them from the roster because they're too expensive. And that is one of the conclusions from research we've done uh, going back to like the nifty 50 stocks. Going back to the dot-com boom bust. Um, and so, you know, when when earnings growth slows down, be careful, right? And I'm seeing that across several big tech stocks right now. And people are complacent about it. Um, so if you're not getting compensated for earning, you're not getting the earnings growth, but you're paying a high valuation, that's dangerous. NVIDIA is, you know, what I what I see in NVIDIA is a, a few high-level drivers. One is you have this trend in AI. So in growth stocks are about momentum. They have internal momentum that, and what's that momentum driven by? It's driven by CapEx spend. CapEx spend means when corporates and governments and startups spend money on infrastructure, these Nvidia H100s, right? That's the thing we know for sure. We don't know how these guys are gonna, make, we don't know how Google's gonna make money on AI, but we know is receiving revenue from Google. Google spend is Nvidia's revenue, and same for Microsoft, same for Amazon, same for Palantir. So I look at that trend and I ask myself, okay, who are the customers behind that trend? They're governments and big tech. And there are no better customers in the world than those two groups. And it's a top three priority. You know, in my former life at Management Consulting, when we would meet with CEOs of organizations, we would say, what's your top three priorities? Because that's what we want to focus on and you tune out the rest. And AI is a top priority. They're going to spend. It's a top priority because the form factor for the consumer experience is up in the air now. AI is gonna change it. The form factor I mean here, you know, we've gone from we're going from keyboards to mice to Windows operating systems to the mobile form factor. Now it'll be the AI form factor. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how voice input and goggles play into all that, but we know it's up in the air and it's gonna change. And the prize for winning that. Is substantial. It's trillions of dollars of market cap. So these big tech companies are committed to spending on AI. NVIDIA is a beneficiary and governments are as well because the competitive advantage of achieving AI is extraordinary. So that's my high level thesis. I would get what I look for in every earnings call in NVIDIA is did pipeline grow or did it shrink? If pipeline starts to uh, moderate, then you know that's when you want to start looking for the exit and the other ways to think about nvidia are they are part of a big supply chain you know they're buying from taiwan semiconductor they're buying from asml and by the way some of those plays may have a better risk-adjusted return than nvidia right because nvidia is highly discussed we want to look at things that are less discussed but benefiting from the same trend um, i think competition is some time away it will show up so i don't know if i'll be there for five years this is one of the things you have to monitor and, and reassess and study
0: the supply chain. Well, I, I think if, if anybody has exposure to NVIDIA in the audience, they're probably pretty jazzed up about the level of detail in that analysis. So you know thank you, Rob. One yeah. other yeah, one other stock you've tweeted a, a fair amount about is Tesla stock, and I do yeah. think this is kind of anecdotal, but I think that a lot of people that have exposure to Bitcoin, like one of the stocks that they will uh, you know, have exposure to is Tesla. What do you make of where Tesla's at? It's been a very volatile year. It's so true.
2: By the way, all your questions are fantastic. These are all my favorite topics. so thank you for yeah, indulging me and in getting to share my points of view on all this. It's a really, really rich discussion and back and forth here, but... On Tesla, uh, you're right. There's a lot of overlap between Tesla and Bitcoin. You know, I, I'm not excited about Tesla. Uh, headlines are number one. And look, I you know, we go through these earnings calls transcripts. And, you know, you see Elon talking about how higher interest rates are making it more difficult for consumers to buy a Tesla. So they've done price cuts. Those price cuts are helping to offset the burden of higher interest rates so okay it's more affordable by a tesla but when you look at the lease payment there's an interest rate component that's factoring into that and maybe the price cuts are deeper than straight we'll see how it plays out but it's not a you know it's i don't believe it's a market expansion opportunity which is how some people are positioning it second thing is in that earnings what we saw last quarter is their operating margins dropped from 20 percent to 10%. Now, the counterargument is saying, hey, they're going to make it up in volume. They need to double the volume. Now, uh, and where are they going to double the volume? What's the growth market? Who's the marginal consumer? It's China, right? They're building something like a million EVs in China. You know, the issue in China is the China consumer has is starting to. uh...
0: I think we lost Rom for a second, but I think he'll be back. Might be a phone call.
2: Sorry about that. I got to figure it out keep this on and phone calls off, we do my Do Not Disturb. I should have done that earlier. But the um, yeah, so that's my take on Tesla. Also like it's the valuation is very, very rich. Like it, it, I, I'm excited about the opportunity for electric taxis. I'm very excited, like bring that future forward. I love it, let's do that, we need that yesterday. And by the way, where are these things, right? But the issue is you also need state by state regulation. So rather than try to front run that and say, oh, it'll happen, Let's been on today, Why not wait for evidence? You'll have time to look at that evidence. You don't need to speculate on whether that will materialize or not. And there are, you know, there's a world of investment opportunities. There's so many things you can invest in in the world. you know, why not focus on investments that are sub $50 billion market cap? It's easier for a $50 billion market cap to 10x than it is for an $800 billion market cap to 10x. The larger you are, the harder hardest to grow. There's this expression in investing. It's called size is the enemy of returns. Um, and yeah, I think I think several of these big tech companies uh, are having challenges around growing earnings at a rate commensurate with their PE. I mean, Apple has a year over year revenue decline. Most people don't realize that. Think about that. Apple is shrinking As a business on revenue right and that's just one netflix okay they they got some more growth tricks in them but they're starting to see the end of it they're more more mounting competition so you know growth stocks go through cycles we saw this again we saw in the nifty 50s these were stocks like xerox polaroid had a 70 pe they thought it was the greatest stock in the world that's gone (laughs) kodak you know disruption is there it's real and some of those companies have come through today like mcdonald's and coca-cola but they trade much more cheaply. So when when growth stocks stop growing quickly, the multiple compresses, and that's where investors feel the pain. And we saw that with Nvidia last year, by the way, had a significant drawdown, right? So growth stocks, you know, have a lot of volatility, Um, but all to say is, you know, there are better opportunities than small cap. Your return on time is highest in researching the next best small cap growth stock that no one ever heard of. It takes time to do that, but your turn on time there is better than trading.
0: And sure, and if uh, if you can't hear me, let me know just because I think Twitter is malfunctioning a little bit. But it looks like uh, I'm good to go. Rob, just to add on to that, uh, you know, if you look at the turnover in the companies in the S and P 500 over long time horizons, like 10 to 20 years, it's it's pretty insane. You know, so just to think that. The same stocks are going to be, you know, the top performing stocks over two decades. Uh, it's it's you know not a given by any means. Real quick, ladies and gentlemen, just want to remind everyone that the Bitcoin Show is sponsored by Trust Machines. Trust Machines being the company that's growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. Last week, Trust Machines announced the launch of Leather, which is the Bitcoin wallet designed to create a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer two solutions. Leather's self-custodied, open-source, and an audited wallet, allowing users to secure and manage Bitcoin, Ordinals, Stacks L2, and other Bitcoin-secured assets like BRC20. So, for more info, uh, go to Leather.io. And as always, make sure you're following Trust Machines right here on X. It's at Trust Machines Co. here on Twitter. Uh, Ram, I know you got to jump in a couple of minutes, but uh, I wanted to sneak in a couple of questions about real estate. You tweeted that the best yeah. risk-adjusted return is in distressed commercial real estate we've talked to different guests on this show about uh, both commercial and residential Mm -hmm. real estate both are pretty damn complicated right now uh, from what I'm able to gather I'm by no means an expert but how are you thinking about you know commercial real estate and maybe if we have time how are you thinking about residential Yeah, commercial
2: and multifamily are interesting right and so here here's the backdrop You've got two trillion dollars in commercial real estate debt that needs to be refinanced in in the next four years. Five hundred billion coming due this year. The banks are on defense because deposits are flowing out of the banking system. It's down six percent. And the regulators are are pressuring the banks to cough up these assets. And by the way, the primary lending activity of a community bank is commercial real estate. Same thing for regional banks. So the banks can't finance it. The second thing, uh, they can't provide the liquidity the market needs. Right. When there's a capital imbalance, when there's not enough capital for a set of opportunities, that's when I perk my ears up and I start to focus, right? The second thing that is happening is you have these construction contractors that took out these short-term construction loans. The way a construction loan works is you have a floating rate loan one to three years. They took these loans out even like a year and a half ago, a year ago, and there were relatively low interest rates. Now interest rates have jumped up 5% and now they're underwater and it's not it doesn't make any sense for them to hold on to that property so they take a bath on their equity unless they can inject new cash unless they can come up with new equity themselves most can't do that so they turn in the keys even the ones that can do that don't do that right uh brookfield is one of the largest real estate operators in the united states they're also quote unquote turning in the keys to the banks baronado trust is publicly traded they've turned the keys on these assets. Uh, and yeah, I've seen transactions in the market. You know, we you know, talked to folks in the market, There's a, you know, a CRE class a property in Minneapolis, it transacted with a 12 and a half percent cap rate. Cap rate is like the coupon you earn for a fully stabilized asset, meaning out. That's very attractive. And you gain the depreciation on that. That's just a one off, for instance. But you know, I, I lived at the financial crisis of the Merrill Lynch. and What I saw is this after kind of, Wall Street almost took down the system through all these subprime toxic securitizations. Uh, what happened is. People that bought those distressed securities did very well because they knew where the value was, because everything got tossed out. There was not enough capital to finance it and more money was made in the big long than the big short. The big short's got a great movie. You know, some people made a lot of money on that, but more people made money going long these orphaned assets that were being sold through non-economic, you know, selling activity. So I'm very excited about that. You know, the funds I invested in, just to give you guys perspective, put some numbers around the stuff. I mean, I was buying non-agency bonds, like 20 cents on the dollar, went to 80 cents. You know, those there's, there's, there's funds that were investing in foreclosed real estate, Those are like three X's and four X's pre-tax, right? After tax, because of the depreciation interest tax shield, the higher the tax jurisdiction you're in, the returns are even better. So yeah, from a a risk-adjusted return perspective, meaning something I can sleep well at night, not worry about the markets and have something compounding book value and that get cash flow that's not taxable, that is my highest conviction alternative investment Thesis and we recommend it to our clients as an anchor part of their portfolio uh, because we believe, you know, with high conviction, it will exceed the returns off of, you know, U.S. equities.
0: Well, well we appreciate you sharing that insight, Rom. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you follow Rom here on Twitter. You can see his account right on stage. Follow Lumita Wealth. Anywhere else that they should find you, Rom, any newsletter, anywhere you want to drive sure. people
2: Sure. Thank you. First off, I'm on Twitter as well. It's Rom Lumido Wealth. We're experimenting with that video format. And then uh, we have a newsletter. If you go to at Lumida Wealth and you click through there on that profile, I'll just click the profile. I'll tell you how to subscribe. We share a weekly summary of our thoughts on opportunities in the markets where we believe there's value. We focus on you know digital assets, alternatives, uh, equities, rates, and try to generate a synthesis of what we're seeing.
0: Absolutely. And people should check out the interviews that you've done you know, on, on TV and also on platforms like Bankless. It's always really great like information-dense stuff. We were really excited uh, to be able to have you on. You didn't disappoint. Uh, thanks so much again for joining, Ram.
2: Phenomenal questions. I love this. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care now.
0: You too, appreciate it. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, of course, check out Trust Machines. You see the account on stage at Trust Machines Co. The leather wallet just dropped. Check out leather.io. We're really excited about that. And of course, uh, make sure you share the show with your friends. We do this every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Eastern time, also available on Apple, Spotify podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next Tuesday with another great guest. One more shout out to Ron. Make sure you give him a follow here on Twitter and we will see you all next week. Thanks for joining everyone. See you next time.